morning. It's good to be able to sit closer to each other. I'll ask you to turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, and we will be considering verses 18 to 33. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 to verse 33. Very familiar passage. Very difficult passage to apply. Well, easy to apply, hard to live out. Now, um, the church I used to pastor sponsored a, an inter-church youth retreat every year before COVID. And at one of them, one of the attendees was inviting the other youth to join her for a 7 a.m. workout session. And one of the chaperones replied, workout? That's a swear word to me. <laughs> Some of you might think workout is a swear word. Some of you may not. But for many of us, there's another swear word, and it's Submit. See, we don't like being under authority. We want the freedom to run our own lives as we please. I mean, I'm happy to live under the authority of the elders for as long as they do what I say. <laughs> when they start saying no, that's when conflict appears, right? But let's understand, living under authority is part and parcel of living to please our God, as we talked about in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 up to verse 21. And paradoxically, living under authority is actually the way to true freedom and genuine flourishing. And as a church, we display, by living under God-ordained authority, the transformative triumph of our Savior. And that's what we are going to talk about today in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 to verse 33. So that you catch the whole flavor of it, I'm going to read from verse 15, Ephesians 5, 15. And I'm going to extend the reading all the way to chapter 6, Verse 9. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. 
Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will, as to the Lord and not to man knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same thing, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. Now, we recognize that submitting out of reverence for Christ in verse 21 is the general rubric governing the household code that is set out in, verse, in chapter 5, verse 22, up to chapter 6, verse 9. And that submission to one another out of reverence for Christ is the result, the fruit of being filled by the Holy Spirit. That's how we know you're filled with the Holy Spirit, when you submit to proper authority. Now, a lot of commentators have understood verse, 18, or verse 21 as referring to mutual submission or reciprocal submission, because it says submitting to one another. However, when you look at the context, you realize that it's not really reciprocal submission, because... Christ does not submit to the church. I hope not, because we have some... <laughs> the church has made some very bad decisions. And if Christ submits to the church, that's a recipe for trouble. By the same token, parents do not submit to their children, or I hope not. It is our task to seek what is best for our children, understanding that our children don't necessarily know what is best for them. Moreover, um, Richard Koken points out in his commentary, Ephesians for You, 
In all 40 occurrences in the New Testament, the word submit means to arrange yourself under someone's authority as soldiers accept the authority of their commanding officers. And so we recognize that the submission that Paul envisions here isn't reciprocal submission, but rather submission to proper authority. Because we love and revere our Savior and Lord, we give up our selfish determination to have our way so that we may seek the welfare of others. We submit to proper authority because we want to please Jesus, who is the lover of our souls. And the household code, it's called the household code because it talks about relationships within the household fleshes out what submission looks like in different relationships, in daily life. And at first glance, it looks like an outdated artifact of Paul's era, doesn't it? But let's recognize a couple of things. First of all, Paul is writing under the guidance of the eternal, unchanging Holy Spirit. So that we must recognize that this is God's normative, transcultural, transgenerational word for our good. It's part of our submission to him. And more importantly, when we read these words in light of Paul's cultural setting, we actually realize that his words were radically subversive for his time as much as it is for ours today. Here's what Timothy Gombis would observe as he reads this household code. Oh, we don't have it. Oh, there. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> um, just a note, I, I include the quotes and I quote from a lot of people, in part so that I could introduce you to certain books that have helped me. That's one. Two, it's an, an act of academic integrity. Uh, I want to footnote so that you know that these are not my brilliance. I'm <laughs> not smart enough for this. This is uh, what I've learned from scholars, okay? So just so you know. So let's read that. All members of God's new people enjoy dignity and honor as humans and fully participate in the flourishing of the community. In other household codes, the same sets of relationships appear. Husband, wife, father, children, master, slaves. But the point of the instruction is for the ultimate comfort of the husband and patriarch. That is, the counsel is directed toward the well-ordered household with a view to how the patriarch would maintain control over every other member of the community. Paul's instruction, therefore, is radically subversive. Where there are hierarchical relationships, Paul addresses the subordinate members first, giving them unprecedented dignity. They are full and equal participants in the people of God. In contemporary visions of ancient society, these members are not addressed. That is to say, the wife would never be addressed. The children would never be addressed. Slaves would never be addressed. They appear only as objects of control by the patriarch. 
But among God's new people, there is no place for control, domination, manipulation, or exploitation. So please understand, this household code written by Paul captures the beauty of relationships that are guided and motivated by the love of Christ. It is meant to illustrate how we follow the example of our Savior who honored women and treated outcasts and socially marginalized persons with dignity and compassion. And the gospel vision that we are called to embody in our relationships acknowledges that our identity and our value come from God who made us in His image for His glory. That is the basis for the equality and dignity of every person. And as followers of Jesus Christ, please understand, our worth is grounded in our union with Christ that has made us adopted sons of God and citizens of heaven. For us to base our identity on sexuality, on our accomplishments, on our looks, on our abilities, or anything else apart from our status as the children of God is idolatrous and self-destructive. And I make a particular point of this because we're talking about marriage. And Paul Tripp points out that no marriage will be unaffected when the people in the marriage are seeking to get from the creation what they were only ever meant to get from the Creator. That comes from this book that I'm using for counseling for the people getting married. Uh, I trust you've read chapters one and two. Yeah, good. <laughs> this is also in the library. There's one copy. And I, I highly recommend it to people because when I was using this to counsel people getting married, I found myself being counseled and being convicted. So please, I encourage all the married couples to um, take it out. One at a time, no fighting. <laughs> Supposed to share. But I hope you recognize that the love of Christ challenges us because it reorients our disordered loves and twisted desires to live under His authority for His pleasure and purposes. And that's where it connects, not just with the married people, but with the people be getting ready to get married, but also with the people who are not married and who will never get married. This is the point of this household code. The love of Christ teaches us to love others and to desire their greatest well-being so that we live under authority to please our God and King. And Paul applies that submission to the marriage relationship. It is a covenant relationship. Tim Keller calls it a sacrificial commitment to the good of the other. And so wives are first addressed and told, submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord. Notice, to your own husband. Wives only to your own husband, not to anybody else. It is an expression of your love for the Lord. That's why it says, ask to the Lord. 
And the standard of that submission is the submission of the church to Christ. A comprehensive acknowledgement of His Lordship in every aspect of life. That does not mean that you are to be a mindless doormat. Wives, submission is not subjugation. Rather, submission involves giving yourself fully to supporting and assisting your husband in his leadership of the home. That's why we read Genesis 1, uh, Genesis 2. The wife is the help meet. You use your gifts and abilities to help your husband, and he definitely needs it, <laughs> so that your family would thrive. So in my family, one of the ways Joelle expresses her submission is by taking care of our finances because I am very incompetent in handling money. Uh, I have, uh, I'm angry with money. I just spend it as soon as I get it. <laughs> Praise God for her. <laughs> That's her submission. And, and it works because submission begins with voluntarily self-humbling. You're not lording it over your incompetent husband. <laughs> you renounce your self-interest for the sake of your family. It's your way of imitating Jesus. He voluntarily humbled himself in order to be fully obedient to his father. That's Philippians chapter 2, isn't it? And let me, and I've invited a woman to speak to this, Kathy Keller, Tim Keller's wife. I can't pay her speaking fee, so I'm just going to quote her. <laughs> the relationship of the father and the son is a pattern for the relationship of husband and wife. The son submits to the father's headship with free, voluntary, and joyful eagerness not out of coercion or inferiority. The Father's headship is acknowledged in reciprocal delight, respect, and love. And please note this very important statement. There is no inequality of ability or dignity. We are differently gendered to reflect this life within the Trinity. That was the content of Matt's prayer. Male and female are invited to mirror and reflect the dance of the Trinity. Loving, self-sacrificing authority and loving, courageous submission. The son takes a subordinate role and in that movement he shows not his weakness but his greatness. And we know that. We know that Jesus showed his glory by self-giving submission. We'll talk about that at good, on Good Friday. But let's admit, we struggle to submit. And I'm not just talking about wives. I'm talking about everybody. We struggle to submit because in our minds and in our hearts, submission implies inferiority. And worse, we resist and fear authority because we have seen power abused far too often. And as a case in point, this text has been abused and misused to oppress women, to oppress women. We have to admit that as a church, 
we have to stand against it as a church. But that does not mean that we reject the biblical standard. Do not throw the baby out with the bathwater. The misuse of this text is a window into the brokenness of our world and into the twistedness of our own hearts. The good news of Jesus that has made us new creations means that we must submit to the work of the Spirit, shining His light into our hearts to correct our darkened understanding and our distorted desires. We resist the darkness of sin not by eliminating or redefining Ephesians 5 to suit our tastes, but by living out God's good intent for marriage. See, marriage is designed by God to proclaim the gospel by displaying the character of our Lord Jesus Christ through both partners. And as we fulfill our God-given roles, the Spirit enables us to reflect the character of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if a wife reflects the character of Christ by her submission, a submission described by Kathy Keller very well, a husband reflects the character of Jesus by loving his wife as Christ loved the church. And ladies, if you think submission is hard, to love as Christ loved is well nigh impossible. The standard that Jesus sets demands that we love our wives, first of all, unconditionally. Because isn't that how Jesus loved us? He loved us while we were yet sinners. And to love us, Jesus' love also means that we must love our wives persistently, with perseverance. Because Jesus continues to love us, even though we consistently fall short. The fact that we're still here is a testament to the fact that Christ has not given up on us. He has not stopped loving us. Instead, He keeps forgiving and pursuing us. Because his love isn't based on our performance. Thank goodness. His love is based on his sovereign, eternal decision to set his love upon you and me. And our comfort is that this God is infinite, eternal, and unchanging. And so having chosen to love us eternally, from eternity, he will never Stop loving us. And the amazing thing to me is that this love that God has for you and me does not wane or wax. It is always at the fever pitch of the infinite eternal character of this loving God. Guys, that's the standard for us. And last, and let's recognize also that this love, Paul says, is self-giving. Notice, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
He laid down His life for us. A lot of popular songs make this claim. I would die for you. I will not sing. (laughs) We hear that a lot. Question is, is it lived out from day to day? Forget dying. Do we give ourselves fully and unreservedly for the welfare and benefit of our wives? Doesn't mean that we give them everything they want. That would be spoiling them. Um, In my culture, we have a statement, happy wife, happy life. I would respond by saying, spoiled wife, stinky life. (laughs) See, you have to read further in the text. Christ's love is purposeful. He gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water by the word, so that he may present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That word is the gospel. Through the gospel, Christ has set us apart for himself, and through that same gospel, he is purifying us here and now. Men, we are called to servant leadership in our homes that is patterned after Jesus. Jesus subverts the world's understanding of authority. We think power is meant to protect our personal interests. But Jesus used his power and position to seek our best interest. He gave himself, not to meet our wants. He gave himself to meet our deepest, greatest need for forgiveness and reconciliation with God. And that's the same challenge for you and me as husbands. As objects of God's of Christ's self-giving love and leadership. We are called, in verse 28 and 29, to nourish and cherish our wives the way we take care of our bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And I hope you will see the reference to the second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Your wife is your nearest neighbor. In fact, you share a bed with her. What does that look like? When I think of nourishing and cherishing your wife, I think of a good friend of mine who has three autistic kids. The church that he pastors cannot pay him a full salary, so he teaches at a Christian school to make ends meet. You can imagine that this guy works long hours. But when he gets home from work, he does not take the time to relax or unwind. He goes into what he calls second shift. No matter how tired he is, 
he takes over to care for his kids so that his wife can have a break. He nurtures his wife physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And God has given us this task even if we are not necessarily smarter, wiser, or more godly than our wives. Please understand that. He gave us in, uh, this responsibility that, frankly, is beyond our capability so that you and I would be pushed to grow and mature. Again, Tim and Kathy Keller would describe, their marriage, describe marriage as a vehicle for spouses helping each other become their glorious future selves through sacrificial service and spiritual friendship. You look at that vision that Paul presents and you think, man, that's different from my understanding of marriage. It was counter, it's countercultural now. It was countercultural then. See, in, in the Mediterranean culture of Paul's day, families would arrange marriages in order to promote their interests. The children were pawns in family advancement. And so a wife would be more loyal to her blood family than to her spouse. By the same token, the husband would also be more loyal to his blood family. But you will notice how Paul redefines their loyalties. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And Richard Coken unpacks this point. God has decreed that a marriage creates a new family. This means that a husband and wife are to make each other their first priority ahead of parents and other members of their wider family, which can be difficult in many cultures. The husband and wife are united but not fused, meaning joined together in a partnership of body expressed sexually, mind expressed in conversation, and soul expressed in a spiritual union recognized by God. See, God designed marriage for more than personal happiness. We come into what Paul calls a profound mystery. You see, marriage is meant to proclaim the gospel by revealing and exemplifying our union with Christ. That's what Paul is saying. Because, verse 30, because we are members of his body. And that mystery is what we talked about in chapter 3 and in chapter 1. The union between Christ and the church foreshadows the uniting of all things under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Brethren, our, God wants our marriages to thrive. Because from the beginning, he designed marriage to point to the covenant relationship between Christ and his church. Here's the vision statement for your marriage. Let our marriage be a living, breathing picture of the gospel for all the world to see. And we show everyone around us that dying to self in order to follow Jesus 
is the only way to find our truest selves and enjoy the fullest life. But then all of us would say, oh man, I've messed up. Because my marriage isn't that way. My marriage is far from perfect. Well, let me ask Richard Culkin to address that. What if my marriage is struggling? Well, when our marriages are struggling, while we stay together, we are not a battlefield, but a victory parade, demonstrating God's power to keep us together under Christ. An illustration of the gospel. For the Bible is the story of God choosing a wife for his son, and astonishingly choosing wretched sinners like us to be that bride and so to enjoy His marvelous grace. Our happy marriage to Christ is the goal of history, and every earthly marriage, whether as a beautiful comparison or an ugly contrast, is a powerful reminder of it. Look, in this life, your marriage is never going to be perfect because you are married to sinner, and in case you forgot... You're also a sinner. But this is important that we, by the grace of God, apply the gospel to our relationship. The missions committee has been talking to a group called Safe Families. It's a ministry that seeks to help families in crisis by mentoring parents by hosting families that need a place and providing whatever practical assistance would be necessary. And the missions committee has been talking about the church partnering with them as a way of being light in the darkness of Guelph. So I'd like you to imagine what that would look like, why this text is so important for that engagement. Imagine a family in crisis being hosted by one of the families in our church. They see an imperfect couple navigating the daily stresses and conflicts of life. Our flaws are on full display because they're with us. They hear our arguments. They see the tension. They feel the tension when we don't get along. But my hope, my prayer, is that they would also see that in the midst of the conflict, we exercise forgiveness. In the midst of the conflict, we guard our tongues. We say sorry, and we say I forgive you. Because the love of Christ enables us to forgive each other and move past our individual offenses so that we can work together to help these families in crisis. And the hope is that as they see us continuing to work through the conflicts, they would wonder, what makes these people tick? How do they make forgiveness work? How do they even forgive each other? That's our hope. But even if they don't ask the question, doesn't mean we've failed. You see, God's design for the church in chapter 3 is to show His multicolored wisdom 
to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The people around us are merely bystanders. They are not the primary audience. Our marriage, broken as it is, shows the heavenly hosts the triumph of God in Christ that has overcome evil powers and transformed us to look more like Jesus as we stay together and forgive one another and exercise persevering, persistent love in the face of all the failures in that marriage. And yes, let us admit to one another, we all fall short. I say this fully conscious that I have not loved my wife as Christ loved his church. You see, marriage exposes our need for Jesus. Someone once said, your spouse always hooks your idol. And that is very true. See, in grace, God uses marriage to reveal how truly selfish and ugly we are. And that is precisely why Christ laid down his life for us. See, we need more than an example. Marriage tells us we need a savior who would pay for our sins and make us right with God. Our comfort and confidence that is that his spirit is remaking us even through our relationship struggles. That fight that you had last night or yesterday or whenever it was that you had that last blow up. That's part of God's way of refining your character and making you look more like Jesus because it shows where your idol is so that you can run back to the cross and confess your idol. It is God's way of showing us his grace so that we would be able, through the Spirit's work, to live out submission and servant leadership. See, Christ died and rose again so that we together might incarnate his love. And our hope, our confidence, our comfort in the midst of our failure is found in verse 27. Here's a vision of what we will be. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Verse 27. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. That's our hope. We struggle here and now. But that's not the end of the story. Our story is still being written, but the end has been written. One day, the church 
will be a pure, spotless bride fit for the King of kings and Lord of lords. That means that each of us, single, married, widowed, widower, all of us, we look like Jesus. Our Creator and Savior died and rose again so that He may perfect His new creation. I was sitting down with a kid. Uh, I was with the kids from RCA on, on Friday. One of them made a very profound observation. Said, humanity is God's greatest achievement and God's greatest failure. Maybe not well said, but I think we all recognize Christ, the Son of God, became man. So that we who are failures might be made new, might be redeemed, might indeed be that greatest achievement. We are folded into the dance of the Trinity to enjoy Father, Son, and Spirit forever. But in the here and now, by the grace of God, let us work out our union with Christ by the grace of God to make our marriages a living, breathing picture of the gospel. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace in the midst of our failures. O oh Lord, as this text confronts us, we cannot but say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. For each in our own way, we act selfishly in our marriages, not just in our marriages. We take our selfishness to work. We take our selfishness everywhere we go. We thank you that Despite our continuing sinfulness, you do not give up on us. You continue to love us. You continue, indeed, to use our failures to expose our sin, to expose our need, to drive us back to you. Father, we pray, let our response to this message not be, I'll do better. Let our response be, Father, forgive me, for I have sinned. Help us to run back to Christ and seek refuge in him so that we may know his love that continues to forgive us so that we might be gripped by that same love to live no longer for ourselves but for him who for us died and rose again. This we ask in Christ's name, for his glory, for his honor. Amen.